Welcome everyone to this week's episode of FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussions. I'm your host, Aaron White, and this week we have two new reviews and one interview I'm excited to share with you. Here on FF Plus, the format is pretty straightforward. I always will cover what I liked, what I didn't like, and I'll give you a recommendation about whether I think the film is worth your time and money. It's simple, short, and spoiler-free. With that, let's jump right in. The first film I'm going to be talking about is Aquaman, King of Atlantis from WB Animation, starring the voice work of Cooper Andrews and Jillian Jacobs and many others. It is directed by Keith Paquez, and it is conceived and written by Victor Courtright, Marley Halpern-Grazer, Brian Condon, and Laura Sribney. What's it about? This originally an epic miniseries that is now a feature film begins with Aquaman starting his first day on the job as King of Atlantis. He's got a lot of catching up to do. Luckily, he has his two royal advisors to back him up, the scholar Volko and Mera, the water-controlling warrior princess. Between dealing with unscrupulous surface dwellers, elder evils from beyond time, and his own half-brother who wants to overthrow him, Aquaman must rise to the challenge and prove to his subjects and to himself that he's the true heir to the throne and holder of the trident. Now, this miniseries that aired, I believe, last year and is just now coming back out as a feature film was produced by James Wan, and it is actually set after the events of James Wan's 2018 live-action film Aquaman. I don't believe it is considered canon, but it is essentially following that film. It's basically like a sequel. It's Aquaman, after the events of that movie, he's now the king, and he's going to go on some adventures and see what happens. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if this ends up getting referenced in the upcoming sequel film, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Throughout this whole movie slash miniseries, frankly, I don't know why they are making it into a quote movie and putting the three unique chapters or episodes together. I don't feel like it had any necessary reason to do that and call it a film you could have just put it out on dvd and i do mean on dvd like they literally sent me an actual dvd i was surprised that my playstation 5 even played it and was not kicking it out like what is this old technology <laughs> but the yeah they put it out on dvd that's what they sent me to review and you know i, I just don't understand why it wasn't the three episodes uh, as a miniseries. Like, it existed that way. I just It doesn't make sense to me. Yes, it's an arc, and yes, it's a, an ongoing story. That's how a miniseries works, too. So it's just just strange choice there. feels like another marketing attempt in order to maybe sell it to people who wouldn't buy it if it was an hour-and-a-half-long miniseries. Who knows? But regardless, it, it does deal with... Aquaman, who is wrestling with his place as king. He goes through many different battles with Ocean Master about who is the best suited leader for their kingdom. He ends up going out on a mission with Mera, and it leads to this cascading amount of hijinks and adventures and all sorts of interesting action set pieces and lots of comedic moments, all the stuff you would kind of expect from a comedy or a comic book cartoon. I really liked Cooper Andrews as Aquaman. He grew on me quite a bit. I thought that he fit 
this particular style very well. Whereas Jillian Jacobs as Mira, I thought was at best fine and at worst, absolutely awful. She was honestly tremendously grating to me for small periods of time. She as a character, and this is not anything about Jillian Jacobs as the as a voice actress, but just as the character is, you know, being created by her and the director, it's a very kind of over the top and loud kind of humor that I don't like and her personality is much more goofy and dumb than I wanted from the character of Mara. So it made it difficult for me at times to enjoy this pairing. I did not think that they had a great amount of chemistry either. And I'm not saying sexual chemistry because that's not something that's present in this series, but just in general, these are a romantic couple. I just didn't feel it the way that it was trying to sell it to me. There are a lot of gags throughout this series about Aquaman talking to fish and sea creatures. It is overall just very self-aware of Aquaman's reputation as being kind of a joke, and it leans into that. It's a family cartoon, though. It's not for adults. And it's interesting because the art style, which is very unique and is going to be one of those your mileage may vary type of situations. The art style is very reminiscent of some of the more quirky adult shows like Adventure Time, Rick and Morty, the regular show, or even kids stuff like Steven's Universe. And it reminds me of what it might look like if young kids were given a box of crayons and asked to do the storyboards for a new Aquaman show. That's what the art style looks like. Personally, I didn't hate it, but I also did not love it. I think that it it matches the tone of this show, and it's got lots of puns and funny jokes. There's even a musical number about Aquaman talking to fish at one point. I think the art style works well and that you're never meant to take it too seriously. And that's where I say this is, you know, for the whole family. But you might look at it and almost think that it's so childish looking that it's for adults because we've seen that happen before. But that's not the case here. The adventures that Aquaman goes on, you know, take it or leave it. Honestly, I didn't think that they were that great. There are moments that were enjoyable for sure. I think overall this has a pretty weak set of villains that are unsurprisingly more silly and stupid than I like. I guess that just tends to happen when you get a cartoon like this, and it wasn't something that I personally enjoyed very much. Overall, though, I liked it. I mean, I was able to watch it. I found it mildly enjoyable, and it's worth a watch if you are a big Aquaman fan. That's kind of where I sit with this one. It is out now on digital and DVD, and I would keep an eye on HBO Max because if it's not there yet, I would expect it will be again at some point relatively soon because that's where it used to play when it was a miniseries. Next up, we have Marcel the Shell with Shoes On from A24. It stars Jenny Slate, Rosa Salazar, Thomas Mann, and Isabella Rossellini. It is directed by Dean Fleischer Camp. Written by Fleischer Camp, Jenny Slate, and Nick Paley, and based on a story the three of them created with Elizabeth Holm. 
It is based on the short films of the same name created and uploaded to YouTube by Fleischer Camp in 2010. What's it about? Marcel is an adorable one-inch tall shell who ekes out a colorful existence with his grandmother Connie and their pet Lint, Alan. Once part of a sprawling community of shells, they now live alone as the sole survivors of a mysterious tragedy. However, when a documentary filmmaker discovers them, the short film he posts online brings Marcel millions of passionate fans, as well as unprecedented dangers and a new hope of finding his long-lost family. This was such an incredible surprise and delight for me. I was not familiar in the slightest with Marcel the Shell or these YouTube videos that had been posted back in 2010. So I went into this blind, had no idea what I was getting myself into. I'd only seen snippets of the trailer and I just thought that thing is so cute and I've got to find out what this is about. I think that this is the kind of movie and I'm going to go with a little bit of a hyperbole here, but like this is the kind of movie we need as a society, but we need movies like this. That's what I mean is we get a lot of horror movies. We get a lot of action movies. We get a ton of comic book movies. We need movies that are legitimately good for a family that are not cartoons and not dumbed down and that will just make you smile the whole way through that will inspire you that will bring you joy and this movie does that in spades the relationship between marcel and dean is fantastic the way that dean is handling marcel so respectfully and while he is filming marcel and then the way that Marcel kind of pushes back at times and is like, hey, Dean, why aren't you ever on the camera? Why don't you answer questions about yourself? And hey, let's get to know each other. Yes, we become friends. I want to know more about you as well. I don't want it to be all about me just because I'm the subject of the documentary, so to speak. Marcel has a fantastic relationship with her grandmother, his grandmother, Connie. And I just, I don't want to tell you what goes down with that relationship, but it's so nice to have another shell in this film that Marcel can interact with because the stuff with Marcel and Dean is awesome, but it's all in the context of the documentary being shot. So it's Marcel being asked questions and kind of being interviewed and explaining about his life as he goes about his day. And we see what it's like for a shell to live in this gigantic Airbnb house. Whereas when Marcel is with, his grandmother it is very personal and very loving and we get kind of a, a different flavor of their experience that they've had and what it was like for both of them both before and after the extended family that they had disappeared and so you know as i mentioned they are now li the live sole survivors of a mysterious tragedy. I won't tell you what, how that goes down, but essentially all of these family members and, and community that used to be in this house with them, various different uh, pieces of animated things. I, again, I don't want to spoil it because it's interesting uh, when you find out, but they were a group that lived together and, and had this community. And so now they're gone. And there's a loss there that Marcel and the grandmother feel, and that comes through in the storytelling 
here. Marcel is on a mission. Marcel wants to use these videos as a way to hopefully find his family. And that ends up kind of playing out in a really interesting way. 60 Minutes gets involved at one point, and I loved how they kind of worked that in in a very realistic way, getting to see some of the behind the scenes of what it might be like. For someone who was on a show like 60 Minutes, this is a bit terrifying, to be honest. And Jenny Slate's vocal performance is one of the best I've ever heard. Not one of the best this year, one of the best I've ever heard. She is absolutely perfect. She is. It is a wonderful marriage for this endearing on-screen animation that is Marcel. It is a pitch-perfect, mockumentary-style script that is not stupid at any point. It's just sweet and silly and absolutely, utterly charming. This is the purest distillation of wholesome storytelling that I have seen in a long time. I cried multiple times in the theater, both out of joy, out of sadness. Uh, Marcel is the kind of character that he warms the heart and he is not going to be soon forgotten. I cannot wait to see this again. It's a movie that I will rush to own uh, and buy as soon as possible because I just, this is a movie that you will want to just, you, you're you having a bad day, pop this in. You know, you are homesick, pop this in. Something big and life-changing happens with regards to your family situation, you pop this movie in. That's Marcel Shell with shoes on. I absolutely love, love this film, love this character, and could not recommend you going to see this more. Grab everybody and go, for sure. It is available in theaters on June 24th. And last but not least, I had the great opportunity to sit down for a while with Angus McLean, the director and writer of Pixar's latest film, Lightyear. Here is that conversation for your listening pleasure. Hope you enjoy. Feeling film. Feeling film, yes. How are you doing, Angus? I'm fine, Aaron. How are you doing? Good. Good to get a chance to speak with you. Are you in Portland right now? I am not. I'm in Berkeley, California right now. Okay. You still live up in the Northwest? I, I mean, I do. I, I visit at least once a year uh, when we're not in a global pandemic, but I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love Portland. It's very, and I, you know, I do go to Seattle probably once every other year for BrickCon. So I'm up there too. Awesome. Well, that's where I'm at. I wanted to kind of get started by talking a little bit about you specifically. Okay. So you've been with Pixar a long time as an animator. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, how do you go from being an animator, jumping up all the way to writing and directing your own prime Pixar film. It feels like a really big step. And I was just curious kind of how that journey went for you. Well, it's a, it's, it's a slow and steady wins the race. I, you know, I I think it was not an overnight success. I would say Uh, I started as an animator, as you said, uh, and, and I started in 1997 and the company was about 160 people. It's pretty small. And while I was doing animation, I was also interested in being in the story department. I was interested in telling stories. And so I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot in just on the job. And I, I took a story training class with the late Joe Ramps, and I learned a lot. And I was able to do storyboard work on Toy Story 2 and uh, then again on Monsters Incorporated. And then I would kind of ping pong between uh, storyboarding and animation and um, would kind of go I would just kind of go back and forth and that was just sort of something that that went on for a while until you know and I would I don't 
you know, I was, I was sort of help out. I was just trying to learn as much as I could. And so then I did WALL-E uh, and I was, well, I had done I had three and a half years on Incredibles. So I did a lot of animation on Incredibles and Incredibles I learned a lot, probably the most amount I'd ever learned about in animation working with, with Brad Bird. And then after that, I went right to uh, WALL-E and, and WALL-E, the thinking was, why don't we bring an animator in to be in the story department? Because at the time it was a movie without a dialogue. And so I learned a lot and worked on that film for three and a half years. And I was the directing animator on that film. And then after that film, I had some ideas that um, the director understand and encouraged me to, to pitch as a short film. And I did pitch as a short film. And then I made my first short film at, at Pixar and that was Bernie. And then after that, I did a Toy Story tune called Small Fry. And then after that, I did a half hour special Toy Story of Terror. And then after that, I was co-director for Finding Dory. So it really was a very slow and steady trajectory. It was, it was it, you know, such a, a learning process at each step of the way. And it didn't really, I would say I, I was, it was afforded a luxury to learn at that pace. And everything that I ever learned on the ground or as a shorts director or a co-director, I applied towards Lightyear. And think that's such a tremendous gift and have that knowledge to know how to work with the crew on the ground to get and support what you can get out of a crew to produce the kind of images we did for that film so I'm really proud of the work but it was it was not it's not a very repeatable <laughs> journey for people it's not one to to hang your hat on I guess I don't right? <laughs> I, I, I I don't know if if I would have said, you know, hold on for 25 years, you're going to direct the movie, son. Like, right. I don't think that's, <laughs> that's not a great, that's not a pick me up. Cause I think when you're, you know, you're 21, you don't want to hear that it's going to take you that long. Mm -hmm. So did you have any kind of struggles with staying out of the animators room on Lightyear, or were you active and part of the animation team in some capacity as well? That's a great question. I, I, what I did was, is I needed to have an animation team who I trusted a hundred percent. So I had, um, my, the supervising animator was Dave Devan, who, who I worked with for 25 years, who's a spectacular animator. He's like, he's like the De Niro as far as his abilities. He has, as an individual, he, he is a, a, just a fantastic performer. And he has uh, just very humble and just a, a, a very good friend. But I knew I could delegate that to him. And then we had three directing animators. One was uh, uh, Travis Hathaway, who's like Brando. He's probably like maybe the best <laughs> actor at the studio. And he's incredible. And then you had Trevor Shea, who was like the guy who would make Buzz be Buzz. Like he knew Buzz inside and out. And he could just help everybody make it look like the character has like a million controls in it. You can make it look like not buzz really quickly, but it was Trevor's job to make it look great. And then um, we, finally we had Tim Pixton who was the fixer. He was a guy <laughs> who knew how to do everything. And he was like the lead on socks, for example. Okay. So we had the best team. And then under them were a, a, just a crew of killers. So it, it was as a director, I'm just looking to delegate as much as I can to the crew and not worry about it. So when we have animation dailies, what I'm not talking about nuts and bolts of things, I'm just saying, 
emotionally, this scene isn't working because what I needed to do is this. And, and then as far as the executional aspects, the rest of the team can help um, get the, the, the crew to where it needs to be because the animation on this film was probably the most challenging animation that the studio has done. Yeah, well, it turned out great. So Thank you, you guys you. nailed it. I mean, it Thank looks you. just gorgeous. It, it shows, I think, that you had that experience with Wally specifically because yeah. obviously Pixar going back to space here. D was this a story you pitched to the studio or did yeah. the studio okay so they didn't come to you you went to them and no i i yeah i was basically like hey uh i mean i pitched a couple of ideas and i'm like what was the movie that andy saw that made him want to buzz light your toy why don't we just make that movie like okay, it literally so was that was that flippant it was like that's awesome straightforward sci-fi action adventure that is like andy's star wars like let's make the sci-fi movie we always wanted to see it wasn't meant to be necessarily as literally you know yeah and then you see andy in the audience like that wasn't the kind of tone we we're going for it was more like it was just a jumping off point so that you can make a really awesome sci-fi movie. I think that's how an audience will take it. I mean, that's how I took it was. Yeah, hopefully. I, I mean, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I love that you just, you literally, you just put the title card and you just give yeah. us that information. And then yeah. that's, that's pretty yeah. much the only yeah, yeah. toy story that exists in the movie. Yeah. Like it's over at that point. It's buzz. Um, so what kind of influences did you bring to the table then specifically for making your space adventure sci-fi movie in this animated world? Well, sci-fi is a trap because there's so few good sci-fi movies that sci-fi needs to be a window dressing for a, a different genre. And in my case, I wanted to do a thriller. So I went back and looked at the history of thrillers from, you know, The Lady Vanishes to, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout, whatever, the whole gamut. And I try to figure out what makes them successful, what makes them unsuccessful. One of our biggest problems is our running time. You know, we have 90 minutes. There are very few thrillers that are 90 minutes. Maybe Commando, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's 90 minutes. But like, he's like, he starts off, you know, feeding deer with Alyssa Milano and he's trashing bad guys by minute 15. Like it's, that is, a, that is, it's not a perfect movie, but it's tight as a drum as far as action goes. So we looked at thrillers. For me, visually, what I was interested in is hiding as much of everything as we could and making a movie that felt lived in and obscured and cinematic by covering things up with atmospherics and with lighting. I'd always been fascinated by, say, uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, how cinematic parts of that movie felt compared to the original series, most notably the end of the Kobayashi Maru when, when Kirk, sorry, spoiler alert, shows up and it's it's actually just a test as he walks through the atmospherics and he's backlit there's a tremendous sense of cinematic gravitas that elevates what we're used to seeing as the as the, from the tv series but then later on a lot of the regular ones uh stuff is is brightly lit it doesn't have it feels very 80s and not very cinematic so for the cinematography we really looked at a few different cinematographers uh, most notably, uh, Henry Decay, who was a lot of did a lot of the um, French New Wave and did a lot of great stuff with uh, Jean Perrin Melville, who is one of my favorite film directors. And then, additionally, we looked at um, Gordon Willis, specifically his work on Parallax View, and certainly there's a lot of Seattle connection to that one. And, and then, finally, you know, Adrian Biddle, who shot uh, Rain of Fire, most notably uh, Alien. So those three cinematographers were kind of our touchstones for making the movie cinematic. Uh, and then as far as tonally, I wanted the film to have a sense of serious danger and there'd be comedy. It was not going to be a Toy Story movie, 
but it was going to have comedy in it, which we have through socks, but it was going to be much more of a hard sci-fi movie with punctuated with uh, character comedy. Wow. That's it. I mean, if, if that was your goal, it's nice to hear that, that was, was my goal. goal. I mean, my, you, my goal, my goal, honestly, you did was, it. You did the movie it. Like, should <laughs> end and you should go. That was awesome. Like, that's it was. All I yeah. Wanted. Well, man, I love it um, because that is exactly it feels like exactly that's the movie that I watched. So thank you. Thank it's you. really cool to hear those influences. Those are pretty unique, actually. Yeah, well, Wasn't necessarily expecting that. No, no, there's there's lots of film. And there's a lot of film references in the movie. Definitely caught those uh, quite a few of those. I think those are a lot of fun for the adults who are watching. You know, mm-hmm. the kids are going to be able to latch on to socks and buzz. And then there's that extra layer. I, so love, far, I love how subtle it is. Yeah, so far, no one has picked up the Charles Burnett Killer of Sheep reference, but I, I haven't expected them to do so. I heard there's an Easter egg. Is there an Easter egg related to where you're from in here that you can Yes, mention? there there is an Easter egg I can mention. The the A lot of the personnel on Star Command are named after bridges in Portland, Oregon. Really? So, yeah, so you have uh, Hawthorne, uh, Selwood, Fremont, Morrison, Steele, oh. Tillicum, Markham. So they're oh all in there. And then if you look at the um, the security guards have numbers on them and the numbers are the years that those bridges were erected. So Wow, very cool. Well, for my last question, I want to ask you about this one particular theme. My podcast Great. partner and I are big on, obviously, feelings. We uh-huh. approach movies from an emotional perspective. And uh, this, uh, this Buzz and Commander Hawthorne relationship, I think, obviously is central to the movie in so many ways. And it's, yeah. it's beautifully depicted. Thank you. And what we took away from it was this idea that people could have their own trajectories in life. And there was an acceptance that it might not be the same for everyone. And yet you could have a satisfying life and it could be different from someone else. And I just wondered if you could speak just a little bit about what your intention was with that relationship. And are we, are we getting out of it what you wanted? And, and how did you feel about that being such a big part of this movie's story? Uh, well, I love what you got out of it. I, I think that to me, Alicia was always meant to be home, was always meant to be his comfort and his sense of normalcy. And so she's like his big sister. And so she's the one person that's been through everything with him, the person that sees him, the person that knows him. And he has a sense of, he has a sense that his duty is going to bring him fulfillment that, um, his constant failure is not allowing him to achieve. Uh, so like I, this, the, the core of the story, the original part of the story was that they shared uh, a love for home, a love for being back home and not getting back there was, was, was killing him, was, was really frustrating because he felt responsible for it. And she was able to move on from that and ignore the nostalgia of home when he was not. I think nostalgia can be really dangerous. And I think that it's so much easier to look at, oh, things were better before or things will be better in the future and not live in the now. And so that's really the the journey that Buzz takes is really investing. He was worried about the past. Now he's, you know, he's simultaneously focused on everything but where he is in the moment. Um, so that's, those are the things that I was interested in, 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 in exploring. I also think like as a relationship, they have a really interesting relationship in that it's a mentor, a mentor, a sibling relationship, which is uh, not common. And I did not want it to be a romantic relationship because I think Buzz is terribly awkward in a romance. It just, it doesn't, it feels wrong whenever you push him into romance. 
And I think it often diminishes the side characters if they get just slotted into it. the hero who's who's operating out of um, uh, romantic love. It didn't quite, never quite worked. It always felt a little bit like seeing your dad break dance at your 16th birthday party. It just, you wanted it to stop. Um, uh, I want to see Buzz animated dancing at a, a birthday party. That there's, there's a short film for you, Angus. There's a short <laughs> film there somewhere. Yeah. So hopefully that made sense. I, I don't know. It did. No, that's great. Thank you. And thank you, and thank you so much for your time. I think we're done, but I, I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you and thank I'm excited you. to see what you do next. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Angus McLean. I had a great time talking to him and learning about the film and some of his process. If you haven't seen Lightyear yet, please get out to the theaters. Take your family. It is well worth spending some bucks to see on the big screen. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.